T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. It is 707, 57 degrees in the Twin Cities. Great to be with you on a Saturday night. Also along with a for the ride, our producer Jonathan Lowe. Well, this was National Prescription Drug Take Back Day. And many people I know went to various sites uh, all around uh, the region to turn in their unused prescription drugs, including, of course, opioids. Uh, somebody who has been absolutely in the vanguard in this effort of trying to get the word out, as I've been saying, uh, trying to let people know what programs are out there, trying to make Narcan uh, the antidote that can reverse an overdose, an opioid overdose, uh, more available, is Lexi Reed Holtham from the Steve Rumor Hope Network. She has been banging the drum on this issue loudly uh, for as long as I can remember, and it's a pleasure to speak with her tonight. Hey, Lexi, how are you? Hi, Esme. I'm great, and thank you. It's just an honor and a privilege to be here with you tonight and your your listeners. Thanks. Okay, absolutely. Well, you know, I just feel like you really, I mean, you, you founded the Steve Rumler Hope Foundation after your fiancé passed away from an overdose, and, and that was back in, was it 2010? It was 2011. 2011, yeah. okay. And, so and I, you've been ahead. talking about this, you know, and, and, and talking about this, and you were talking about this really before I think anybody else that I knew was talking about it, or maybe you were just more aggressive about saying, calling people up and saying, S.A. Murphy, you got to do something on this. Uh, you, we, we, we need to get the word out. What has changed since that, that time when you started really advocating in this area? Uh, that's a great question, Esme. Um, so in 2011, and really Steve's parents, the Rumlers, really founded the, the network, and I've been um, lucky enough to participate since its inception in creating solutions. But in 2011, there were 16,000 American lives lost on, on that year to opioid overdose deaths, and things have gotten um, significantly worse. We are now facing a pandemic. It's um, Our numbers are 63,600 overdose deaths in 2016 alone. And wow. 66%, I know. And 66% of those were from opioids. Almost 30,000 um, deaths were from prescription opioids, and then another 15, just over 15,000 from illegal opioids such as heroin. Wow. So, so 16, I want to make sure I got this right, 16,000 deaths in 2011 to, to six, over 63,000 in 2016? Yes. So um, specifically opioids. Um, in 2016, prescription opioids were 26,780, um, and heroin opioids were 15,469. And in 2011, all 
all all overdose deaths were sixteen thousand. Wow. So we're really um we're really getting much, much worse since two thousand, Esme. We've had over three hundred thousand Americans lose their lives to opioid overdose deaths. Wow. Uh, and I know that, you know, advocates such as yourself have been talking about so many things, certainly, uh, you know, the push to get Narcan out uh, right. as really seems like that has really taken off. How, and, and for those who don't know what Narcan is, why don't you explain that? And I'd like to know, in your view, is it where you'd like to see it here in our region? Oh, I love that you asked that question. Um, we are making some progress in, in Minnesota. The statistics here in Minnesota were um, we had an 18% increase in opioid overdose deaths between 2015 and 2016. And according to the Minnesota Department of Health, um, the vast majority of those still, uh, the, the total was 395 deaths in 2016 in Minnesota alone. And of that, 194 were from commonly prescribed opioids. And then we had um, another 150 from heroin and then another um, chunk of them from synthetic opioids such as fentanyl and tramadol. So, but on the other side of it, your question about, you know, what is Narcan? We had over 2,000 lives saved in Minnesota, individuals that actually overdosed on an opioid. Someone had the courage to either administer Narcan or called 911 and got first responders there to administer, and over 2,000 lives were saved in 2016 alone. Wow. So, yeah, so we, we're making progress, but we, you asked the question, where should Narcan be or who should have it? Absolutely every individual in our state has the right to carry it and administer it in good faith to save a life. And if you have relatives that are taking their opioids as prescribed, so Percocet or Vicodin um, or Oxycodone or OxyContin you or Tramadol, you should have the antidote because they can overdose taking their prescriptions as prescribed. Absolutely anybody who's in a position to potentially reverse an opioid overdose should have the antidote. It's completely safe and very easy to administer. Right. And uh, so I want to get into that. People can overdose even if they are taking these medications as prescribed? Exactly. So How does that happen? How does that work? So what happens when you overdose is you have receptors in your brain that uptake those opioids. Those same receptors contribute to um, sending a message to your lungs to expand for you to take an inhalation in. So basically, when you overdose, this is very simplistic, my layman's terms. I'm not a medical professional. When you overdose on an opioid, what's happening is you're literally forgetting to breathe. And so when you are prescribed an opioid, if you have something else going on, like um, a lung issue, asthma, chronic pulmonary disease, um, if you drink alcohol, which is a depressant, if you take um, benzodiazepines, antidepressants like Valium with an opioid, it is incredibly dangerous. And the, the combination of those things can cause you to overdose and die. So, and the Narcan, that's something that you can get that without a prescription, right? 
Exactly. Okay. So, um, so how, how do I get Narcan? I mean, can I just walk into Walgreens and get Narcan? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. So you can walk into Walgreens, go to the pharmacy, and um, ask for Narcan or Naloxone. Naloxone is the brand or the generic name, um, and they should give it to you. If you don't feel comfortable with that, you can come to us at the Steve Rumler Hope Network, and we'll train you and give it to you for free. There's an organization called Bahala. You can go to them. They'll give it out to you, train you, and give it to you for free. In Duluth, in that, that area up there, there's an organization called um, Rural Action AIDS Network and um, RAN. They'll give it out to you for free. So there are many choices. And you can go to your doctor and ask for a prescription of it if you feel more comfortable with that. And he can write it to you or write it to someone else. Um, so there's really very few barriers to getting it at this point. And, and so you, there, there are places to get it for free. If you do go yeah. and, and purchase it at a Walgreens or at a Target, how much does it usually cost? Yeah, so that can be a barrier. Um, depending upon your insurance um, and depending upon which device you, you, you get. So there's three different administering devices. One is an intermuscular device. One is a nasal spray, and the other one is a talking box. So um, if you get the the cheapest is the intermuscular, and that's, that's probably going to That's a shot? It. Yes. Okay. So it's a shot that you give in a muscle, and it's very easy to use. But for that, I might choose to come to us or Bahala just to get trained and practice. Um, giving that, or your pharmacist will teach you how to do that too. Um, that costs roughly between... I'd say between $45 and $75, depending upon your copay. The Narcan nasal spray is probably going to run you, you know, between $65 and $120. And then the auto injector, depending on your copay, could run as much as $4,700 for two doses. $4,700? Yes. Whoa. And what what is an auto injector? That is a product where you it, it's a box and you actually pull a tab on it and it talks to you. So it talks you through saving someone's life. It tells you place next to the thigh, push down, and it injects for you. It's still oh. a needle. Yeah. Okay. And that, well, that's obviously very, very pricey. But you're saying that, that there are places where you can obtain a form of Narcan for free. And one of them is the Steve Rommel or Hope Foundation or Hope uh, Network. Hope yeah, Network, excuse me. Name. <laughs> Steve Rommel okay. or Hope Network. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So we're happy to give it to you. We have training, public trainings um, almost every Friday night at the Lunds and Byerleys in Uptown. And we hold them at our office and we go to people's businesses and colleges and we support our first responders and we partner with hospitals. So, and drug court and, we pretty much anyone that wants to partner with us, we are happy to partner with you, happy to provide the education free of cost. We take donations um, and give you the kit free of right. charge, too. All right. You mentioned how this really has evolved and really gotten dramatically worse uh, yes. in the past number of years. And that the, the, mm-hmm. the, the threat that's out there now, it sounds like didn't even exist or it wasn't really on the radar five years ago. And that's this synthetic fentanyl, the synthetic opioids. And that, of course, is infamously what killed Prince. How easy is that to get? How much of it is out there? And and what um, 
what killed Prince, because I was at the news conference where they described what it was, is he was on um, synthetic. He thought he was taking Vicodin. And right. in fact, the pill he was taking, taking looks exactly like a regular Vicodin. But mm-hmm. what it had in it was this synthetic fentanyl. And that's what killed him. I mean, how right. common a scenario is that, and and how where are people getting this? And and and, and law enforcement still is not able to, to figure out how or where Prince got it, uh, and that's why they can't charge anybody in his death. But how big a problem is this? Right, and and just for Prince's family, I'm so sorry for their loss, and how very frustrating that this is still going on two years later without any resolution. And I don't think it's all that uncommon. Um, for us to be in this position as a country with this, um, with the synthetic opioids really having a difficult time tra- tracing where it's coming from. But as may we know in 20, from 2015 to 2016, we had an 83% in synthetic opioid overdose deaths. 83%. So that is really on the rise. And, you know, before I forget to say it, I would encourage anybody out there that is steeped in the disease of addiction. It is a brain disorder. It is a disease. You are not wrong and bad. It is not a moral failing. It is not something to be ashamed of. Please get help. I mean, there are, there's medication assisted treatment, which is, um, doctor prescribed opioids to help you come off of being addicted to opioids. So don't keep turning to the street to get pills because the pills that are out there right now, they are the counterfeit pills look incredibly real. And to be able to distinguish the difference between a real Percocet pill and a um, fake one that more than likely has fentanyl in it, um, is very, very challenging to tell the difference. So it is, it's something that we should be really concerned about. And I think the best thing we can do is really start to encourage our loved ones to please get help. Please talk about it. it doesn't have to be abstinence only. There are programs where you can be on a medication assisted treatment program to work through the disease of addiction to get to recovery. And if Prince would have, you know, there were so many things that we could identify that went wrong in that scenario when his plane landed and his life was saved. Right then and there, that's when we need to intercede and and treat people like they have a disease like any other disease. If he had had a heart attack, there would have been follow-up, there would have been a lot of step A, B, C, D, and we're just failing as a country to provide people with the the help that they deserve. Right. Um, And you, of course, are referring to the fact that he did have a near-fatal overdose just six days before he died. His plane had to be diverted. It was on the way back from a concert in Atlanta, and he was revived, according to the police reports, with two doses of of Narcan. So that is an extraordinary... um, Extraordinary tragedy. It, it does seem um, an, another issue here because I just, you know, just my own personal little experience here with the bumps and bruises in, in my family, which somehow have been um, frequent <laughs> the past year. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, I, I really, and because I've been around people like you, I, I don't feel like the doctors are, are really. Uh, in one case, I explained to you, I had a teenager who was prescribed opioids for pain for mm-hmm. a surgery that was an outpatient surgery. And, you know, it just said take 
every six hours for pain. And you know, I think that there are many parents who would have just given him one every six hours for pain. Well, after the first day, he was fine with Advil. But you know, no one said this is this is a really dangerous drug. And then my husband had ended up having a couple of surgeries within the past few months. And in one of those cases, they did say that. They did say, well, this is really dangerous. But well, in other words, glad. they didn't. You know what? And as may it, this, this, I mean, so we always talk about, about the Steve Remler Hope Network about um, overdose prevention, because that's one of our biggest programs. But also another program we have is prescriber education. And we are just thrilled that um, the Department of Human Services has been working on an opioid prescribing work group, and they have just launched, Governor Dayton a couple days ago, um, launched the opioid prescribing work group's uh, prescribing practices resource. And that is really giving doctors parameters. Listen, if you're prescribing more than this for this type of disease, you are not following the guidelines. And there's some there's some kind of carrot and stick penalties and rewards for them falling into alignment with these prescriber guidelines. So we're really pleased to see that. We've just got to get, we've got to turn off the tap. We can't keep, Esme, in 2016, our Doctors prescribed 3.5 million prescriptions for opioids. And you and I, I know, and you and I have already talked about the fact that a third, according to the CDC, a third of the people that are prescribed opioids become addicted to them. So if we in our state alone... Wow, that's a third become addicted. That's incredible. Yeah. That's scary stuff. It is. So we've got to do better. And carrying Narcan is, you know, that's the like, don't die. And then on the front end, we've got to retrain, reeducate our prescribers and our pharmacies and, and do it differently and educate the public that, you know, everybody's going to have pain sometimes. It's part of being a human being. And we cannot keep taking pills to try and mitigate all of the pain, emotional, physical pain that we feel. As a country, it's killing us. It's a pandemic. All right. Well, Lexi Reed Holtam, thank you so much. Uh, Again, uh, the Steve Rumler Hope Network, the the website's great. It's got tons of information. It's got tons of information on the training, uh, where you can get Narcan for free. Uh, I so appreciate it. Doing such a great job, Lexi. Oh, thank you, Esme. Anytime. You're amazing. I appreciate it, too. You take care. Absolutely. She is amazing because, as I said, she has been banging the drum on this issue long before this really was an epidemic. And despite that, these numbers just just frightening. But, I, you know, and every time, you know, I talk with with Lexi Reed Holden, I feel like I, I get a new statistic that's even more jarring. But a third of those, a third of those who, who get these prescriptions end up being addicted. And, and I do think that the doctors need to make a better when they prescribe these painkillers, they need to just talk to the people and the families they're prescribing them to and, and really lay it out about the potential risks here with these medications because they are good and they can help. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that they do help people, but obviously there's a tremendous risk. All right, folks, uh, much more ahead on this edition of Saturday Night with Esme. We're going to talk about juvenile justice. We've got the farmer's markets coming, yay. And, of course, the one and only Professor David Schultz coming up at 8 o'clock. So let's take a quick break. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO.
It is 731 in the Twin Cities. Uh, Juvenile justice. Uh, Let me ask you this. What do you think should a juvenile, somebody under the age of 18 or 16, should they be sentenced to life in prison? There's certainly scientific evidence to, to suggest that especially boys' minds, their brains are not fully formed until actually sometime in their mid-20s. But 2,200 juveniles are currently sentenced to life in prison without parole. Is this right? And the Supreme Court has actually weighed in on this as well. Bonnie Jane Hall is an author and advocate for juvenile justice reform. Her book, Reaching the Shore, A Story of Survival, Courage, and Endurance, and this is not just a This is not a scholarly book. This is a personal tale. It details her son's journey from a 16-year-old with a life sentence to becoming one of the few convicted juveniles to ever come out of maximum security prison. Bonnie Jane Hall, thank you so much for coming on. We certainly appreciate your time. And thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Bonnie Jane, uh, and do you go by Bonnie Jane? Is that the best? That's fine. Okay. Bonnie Jane, why don't you start and explain your child's story? Yes. Uh, my son was uh, from a just an average family, middle-class family, and he uh, was 16 years old when he was uh, arrested and charged with killing a man. And uh, later I found out that the man that he killed had been molesting boys, including himself, Including your son. Yes. And my son was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And before he went to prison, he was in jail for nine months. And during that time, his appendix broke and nobody believed him. And so he had surgery and they removed, you know, some of his intestinal tract and a lot of muscle. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so how were you able to and at the trial did it did it emerge that, that he had been molested that this person was molesting? No. Boys? I mean, young boys don't talk about it especially at that time. He wouldn't tell anybody what had happened or why it happened. Even oh. his attorney said we might never know. Okay. And how did you find out? I didn't find out until he was a man and then he told me. And then how were you able to piece it together that this was widespread and that, that there was proof that you could show that this had actually had happened? Well, you know, he told me that um, somebody had molested a friend of his. A friend of his had been molested. And for some reason, I never even thought about that friend being him. And so when he told me that, it's just like I knew in my gut that that friend was him. And he was too afraid to tell me. How did you get this overturned to the point where he was set free? I I never got it overturned. Even though he was sentenced to life without parole, they do come up before a parole board every three years after the first 18 years. And But the governor would never sign the papers on it. And he got very sick, and so they finally let him go. And he, after he'd served twenty-seven years, 
Right. And he came home. Now, I know that the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on this. Doesn't that affect most cases? Now it does. Now I mean, it does. But, but it, it was just, in twelve twelve. Right. But does that does that go back to those doesn't that go back to those who are currently serving those life sentences who were in fact sentenced as juveniles? You know, I don't know, but I don't think it does. You know, a lot of states are not going along with it. And it will take a long time to go through that because there are so many cases. There are 200,000 teens arrested and sent to adult prisons every year in this country. So there's a lot to go through, and it's very difficult. It's an uphill climb. You know, I I think that there are probably a lot of people out there who are listening to this and saying, well, if if you commit that kind of a crime, and certainly obviously the the issue of of molestation, what year was, was your son's incident? He was, he, the year was, um, it was uh, 1984. Okay. And, and I, I, and he was 14 right. when he was molested. Right. Well, this, and certainly the ability uh, and the issue of young men speaking out uh, about that kind of a crime. I've done a lot of stories on this kind of thing has changed dramatically. It's still difficult, but but it was the stigma was enormous. Um it was. and and the lack of of counseling was just um very very significant. But um there are a lot of people who would say, well, you know, if somebody does some, a crime like that, even if they are 14, 15, 16, they deserve to go to an adult prison. What do you say to those people? Well, they they never adult, uh, deserve to go to an adult prison because they're not adults. And in our society, they can't do the things that adults do. There's many things that they're not allowed to do that adults are, so they're not considered adults in our society. So why should they be considered adults when it comes to crime? How about uh, what are your thoughts about some of the evidence? And I've heard it, you know, I've heard testimony about this in courts about the fact that, especially for boys, uh, the brain development in terms of their overall ability to understand things, put things in perspective, to really understand the consequences of things, it, it really, it, their brains are not fully formed, not just in their teens, but in, into their early 20s or mid 20s. That's, that's correct. Uh, their uh, prefrontal lobe is not complete. And um, so they are actually impaired. They have a lack of control of their impulses, and they can't even imagine the consequences of their actions. So we have to take that into account. In terms of, um, you know, your son, how is he doing? Um, My son... um, you know, after all the surgeries and all the problems and all the stress and everything in prison, he came home and he lived for three months. And passed away? Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. The stress is unbelievable. And um, he did. He made the most out of his life. The book is wonderful because it tells you what people can do with that time. And he became like a Tai Chi master. 
he was he helped the prison system he educated people he worked with people to improve the prison and he did so many great things so his life was really worth living and, and he so the the illness that he developed was a burst appendix that, that they did not diagnose that, yes that was the beginning and then he always got sick from the food the prison food people don't understand what prison is Nobody knows, really, what prison is like. But the food is pretty bad, and he got sick all the time from the food, and pretty soon he couldn't eat the food there anymore. So he had to buy in the store canned beans, canned chips, stuff like that. And he actually, what he gradually got was uh, lymphoma. Wow. So he he was very, very sick towards the end, and he did not want to die in prison. That was the thing that he wanted the most was to not have to die in prison because he saw so many of his friends die in prison. And so we were so grateful that he he got that. In in terms of overall reforming the system, obviously you have this 2012 uh, landmark Supreme Court case that, yes. that has affected so you know that really has had an enormous impact. Is there anything else that's helped? Because you're saying that there are so, still a lot of people who could be helped by that case, and it's just not there. Maybe not enough lawyers. They're just not getting that kind of assistance. They're um, not. What uh, what other what other things are out there that are either helping or else not helping in terms of this whole area of the law? Well, you can find out a lot in. A lot of the information I get is from the Equal Justice Initiative. And these are people that will work pro bono even. There's about 40 lawyers there. And they work to try to get young people out of prison to to make this work, what the Supreme Court came to. And one of these lawyers was responsible for the Supreme Court action. I mean, he took the case up before the Supreme Court. And uh, anyway, they're working hard, but they need a lot more people. All right. Well, I know, and certainly those that are public defenders are, are, are completely overworked. Um, they are. In, in their jobs. I mean, uh, it's, it's an extraordinarily difficult and important job that they do. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you for your time. Um, it's an important story. Bonnie Jane Hall and your book, uh, Reaching the Shore, Stories survival Courage, survival, Courage, and Endurance. We appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much for All giving right. me up the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you. Good. All right, folks, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Uh, still ahead in the 8 o'clock hour, uh, Professor David Schultz. And normally we talk about politics. I am going to ask him about, and I think this topic is so interesting, um, if you've been following the case of the Golden State Killer uh, that killer was caught after decades, uh, essentially because of familial DNA. Uh, a, a relative of his had, you know, signed on to one of these uh, genealogy websites and had submitted their DNA. We don't know if it was a man or a woman, and that turned out to be a partial match for the DNA of the killer. Police didn't know who the killer was, but by finding this relative, they were able to find their family tree and go through and figure out. And find this guy. Uh, it's an extraordinary story, but it's also raising privacy questions and concerns. So we're going to talk to David Schultz about that. 
And then when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the farmer's markets. Yay, they are back. And even the one on Nicollet Mall is coming back. I am so excited about that. So keep it here. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. All right, folks, 746 in the Twin Cities. It is 57 degrees. And guess what is back? Farmers markets. Yay. And I got to say, uh, we're about to chat with uh, Pat Nelson, who's the market manager of the Minneapolis Farmers Market. Pat, you were originally scheduled for two weeks ago on this program. And we bumped you <laughs> because we were taking calls from stranded motorists <laughs> because of the blizzard. So it's I, I, I know, yeah. but th- so thank you for understanding that we had to take the calls from the stranded motorists in the blizzard. But all I could <laughs> think of was like, I can't wait, cannot wait to go to one of our fabulous farmers markets. Uh, so great to have you on. Thanks so much for being understanding. Well, thanks for having me. And you know something? I, this was the first time I had to have the city of Minneapolis do any snow plowing <laughs> in the middle of April. <laughs> all right. Well, let let me ask. Let me ask you this. First of all, have have some of them already opened? Well, we our official date, uh, starting date for the main market off of Lindale was actually the twenty first last weekend, last Saturday. We were officially open. So, and was um, it open? The the large market off of off of Lindale Avenue, right? And, so like right, sort of right underneath with ninety fours is coming out of downtown. Got you got it. Yeah, love we that were, one. We were open, but it's hard to sell anything when you got piles of snow standing all around. <laughs> yet, but, uh, <laughs> that that's it's, one of my favorite. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, um, and it, it's pretty close to where I live. But it's just um, sort of on that north side of downtown. Um, and th- that's been there for years and they do a fabulous job, uh, really fabulous job. And I, you know, I think sort of what's, what's gotten so cool about the farmer's markets, it's almost sort of has a festival feel to it when you go to one of these farmer markets, but that's the big one. And that was open last weekend. So that with piles of snow, <laughs> um, but, but the, are the other ones opening up soon too? Well, we, we have two satellite markets. We have the, Hennepin County Government Center, which we started up after we had to move off of the Nicola Mall, that's starting up May 1st from 9 to 3. And then we have uh, the Nicola Mall. We're back on Nicola Mall. Yay! Three-year hiatus. And that is May 3rd, Thursday, May 3rd from 6 to 6. Okay. Well, actually, I mean, let me ask you about that, Pat, because it wasn't there in 2015. It wasn't there in 2016. It wasn't there in 2017. So that's four years. Yes, it is four years. Yeah, you're right. We had one year at the on Hampton Avenue, and then two years over at the government center. Right. I just, you know, I just thought that 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 market, and maybe it's because I do work downtown. It just was so nice, and the flowers are so great, and and the foods were great, and they had, you know, people had samples. I, I just, I just thought it was people really, really, really love that, and I think people downtown miss that one in the Nickel Mall. I mean, it was great having it by the government center, which is right here close by WCCO Radio, but uh, for those of us who, who work downtown and, and use the mall, it really was something that, that is sorely missed, and I think people are going to be thrilled to have it back. Well, I know we're happy to be back. A lot of vendors really uh, took it hard when we had to leave, but, you know, we have everybody back, plus some new vendors coming down there, and uh, we look forward to it on Thursday, and hopefully we have some nice weather to 
cooperate with us. Right. So tell us kind of how it works. And for people who haven't gone down to the farmer's markets, what will you see, um, you know, especially if they go to the, the large – and what, what are the hours for the one on Lindale? The one on Lindale is actually open seven days a week from 6 to 1. It's are open they, seven the, days a week? Seven days a week, 6 to 1. The biggest days are Saturdays and Sundays. But we are open seven days a week. And you're not going to get the selection, but you'll get – a, a good selection of plants Monday to Thursday. Friday is comparable to a Sunday, and then Saturday is by far the busiest day. You know, plants are just starting to creep in right now. It's still awfully early to plant much anything outside, but uh, in a, by Mother's Day, we will be full. We'll have 65 vendors with plants. Oh, great. Here okay. For and, the moms to come and purchase. Right, or, or, or somebody to purchase them for the moms. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but and and for for those of you, I may not be doing a great job of explaining this one. And this is the one. And how long has that one been around? The one at Lindale. We have been around since 1937. That's wow, when this, uh, structure was built. Wow. Okay, and this is at. Uh, it's basically Glenwood and Lindale, wouldn't you say? Correct. Right. We're, you know where Glenwood and Olson Memorial Highway is. We're kind of halfway in between those two, off of Lindale Avenue. And there's all sort of international market square. Now, there is construction there on Glenwood, but I think... Yep, there's construction on Glenwood, and there's construction actually still on I-94, on the bridge work over there. So there is some hassles that we're still having to work with um, around there. Right, but I think think the one on Glenwood is supposed to be over pretty soon, I think, Um, in the next week or so. Is is that your understanding Mm -hmm. as well? Yep, that is correct. Okay. But, you know, it, it seems like in Minnesota there's always construction. Yes, right? I know, you, I know. I know. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but so you mentioned plants. So in other words, and, and, you know, it's planting season coming around. I know you've got, like, lots of herbs. But, you know, it, there are things like cheeses and, and pickles and uh, f- fabulous we flowers. Have, yeah, we have a lot of processors down there. And what I mean is people who are small business people who are developing things. Like, we have Dina's hummus will be in. We have George St. Martin uh, pickles down there with about 30 varieties of pickles. Um, we've got uh, Great Harvest Bakery down there. We'll have tea uh, meats down there. You know, organic meats. I mean, it just... We do have meats. Yeah, we have uh, coming directly from the growers. Uh, from anywhere from New Richmond, Wisconsin, all the way down to uh, Arlington and uh, Gaylord. Wow. Okay. And um, how about um, and the satellite market? The Nicollet Mall is the one on Thursdays, and then you, you're still going to have the Hennepin County Government Center one. Yes, we are. Um, we're just going to narrow those hours down a little bit. Instead of from six to six, we're just going to go from nine to three. Makes it a little easier for the vendors to participate the entire time down there. And what day is that going to be at? That is Tuesdays. And so that's going to be every Tuesday. Every Tuesday up until the end of through October. Through October. Okay, great. And, and so that'll be this week as well. Correct. Correct. Okay, well, that that's great because, and that was sort of the substitute, but you're going to keep that as well. And then the Nicollet Mall, will it be sort of similar to what it was, you know, four years ago? It's hard to remember four years ago, but uh, will that be similar? Well, we got a little shorter down there. Instead of the, encompassing five blocks, we're down to two and a half blocks but we're on both sides of the street. 
So we'll go. We'll start at Sixth Street on Nickel Mall, and we go to Ninth Street on Nickel Mall. Okay. Okay. So we're kind of right by the Target there, and um, yep. IDS and. Yes, bank. Okay, and and what kinds of vendors will we see on Nickel and Mall? Well, for the first couple weeks, uh, we'll have a lot of processors down there. Um, you know, bakeries, uh, pickles, that kind of stuff. We will have, we will see plants down there, just not quite as prevalent. Um, we will have Dean's Gardens down there with uh, their fresh herbs and baby lettuces and stuff. Um, that's I love having their hydroponic baby lettuces. That this time of year just gets me itching for some fresh produce so and hopefully in a few weeks we will have some uh asparagus wow okay well i just it's it just it it i'm very excited about it i may have to stop by uh, on my way back from work tomorrow and 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 pick up some things and i know certainly i will be out there on the nicollet mall and and i my friends at uh WCCO TV. I mean, everybody's talking about it, like in the newsroom. People are just really, really excited because it was just something that was just so fun, and and the quality of the flowers and the quality of, of the produce is just wonderful. So if you have, folks, if you haven't just checked this out, it's, this is great stuff. I mean, I and I, your vendors, I assume that they're obviously all local folks. Ninety five percent of them are local. We do have a couple of them that are not, but ninety five percent are local, and they. Uh I tell you, they work their butts to try to give the consumers the best product they possibly can. And it's a lot of small family operations, you know, three to ten acres. And they just work hard to give the consumer the best product for a very value, valuable price. So. And, and I also know that um, on Nicollet, or on, on the on the one at Lindale, the one that's just off of Glenwood, kind of off that Olson Memorial. Um, I know that you've got vendors too that have got you know really good coffee and um, you know things to get to eat. So it's just it, it's just it's just a really fun thing. And I also think it would be really fun for if you've got a you know it's even kids of all ages. I mean, I think I think smaller children would really enjoy it as well. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. I, I can't wait to go there. Thank you, Esme, and uh, you have yourself a wonderful evening. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank All right. You. That is Pat Nelson, uh, the market manager of the Minneapolis Farmers Market. And it's about time. And uh, gosh, on the Nicollet Mall, thank goodness they're back. David Schultz is next, folks. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.